And we are live here on KZSU 90.1 FM. My name is Jacob Nidick for your weekly rendition of The Sports Zoo, live in studio with my co-host Zach Zaffron, currently awaiting a very special episode with the student voice of Stanford baseball, Carson Trail, the man, the myth, the legend behind the voice of KZSU's baseball coverage. He'll be calling in here momentarily as we prepare for a little preview of postseason play for the back-to-back College World Series appearing Stanford baseball team. Zach, what can can we expect from Carson today, and, and what makes him so uniquely positioned to, to speak on Stanford baseball? I mean, you talk about knowing the game. This is a guy that watches each and every Stanford baseball game, not only watches them, announces them, and, and for that very reason, he's going to have so many great insights to the show. See if we can get him in here calling in. Carson, can you hear us? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? Carson, welcome live. You are loud and clear. Welcome to the Sports Zoo. Carson, where have you traveled throughout this season covering Stanford baseball, and what has been some of the highlights of kind of your Stanford baseball experience? Well, I've had the privilege of covering the team for uh, much of their success post-pandemic, including 2021. During that time, I've traveled to uh, USC, Oregon, Oregon State. Uh, Seattle's probably my favorite. Um, I mean, of course, there are the regional rivals like Cal and then, you know, there's some, some other places. Lubbock, Omaha, and, and Oklahoma. So that's a non, it's not collectively exhaustive, but hopefully, you know, I've, I've, I've made clear enough that I'm very grateful for the opportunities that I've had to cover such a, an accomplished team. And, and Carson, truly more than anyone, maybe more than anyone other than those on the team, you have seen this team grow and progress season in and season out. Something we talk about on this show is that long-term growth and transition from different team to different team. This year, a different team than last year, but similar aspirations. How has the Stanford baseball program kind of changed over the last few years? Well, taking a look at the past few years, it's really been a passing of the torch from the veterans, many of whom are now playing professionally, down to the younger players who are in turn becoming the veterans and have a chance to mentor uh, each very talented recruiting class. For example, it was Christian Robinson and Tim Tawa and Nick Bruiser and Zach Gretz. They were mentoring the then freshman Tommy Troy, Drew Bowser, Carter Graham, and Alberto Rios back in 2021. Uh, after that, Brock Jones was kind of the, the leader in the face of the program in 2022. And now with them gone, it's up to, to Bowser, Troy, this you know, very talented position player and pitcher group. It's up to them to pass down this, this culture of winning and of, of Cardinal baseball just in general down to the next group of position players and beyond. Absolutely, Carson. And, you know, looking on to some of those younger players – Stanford has a plethora of freshman pitchers that have seen action this year, but you know, in many people's opinion, Malcolm Moore behind the plate, kind of the gem of this past recruiting class. Who are you most excited about when it comes to the future of Stanford baseball based off of this season? 
Well, I think everybody can get excited about Malcolm Moore and Matt Scott being the battery of the future. Scott's shown a great deal of poise this year, despite it only being his freshman campaign. Obviously, he's got great stuff, even though he's struggled a little bit with command. I'm also going to say Nick Dugan, because he has some electric stuff. He added a slider this year. He looks much better in his past outings, at least in the way of, of stuff. So once he puts it all together, I think that Chance's pitching staff will be in very good shape. And with more, the one calling it pitches, I do think that that'll be a very strong. It will be a strong point going forward, having such an experienced battery. Certainly, and and, and a lot uh, of discussion has surrounded Matt Scott as that number two pitcher because obviously Quinn Matthews, who I believe was named Pac-12 Pitcher of the Year this year, um, has just been so so great for the Cardinal, but. The real question mark for this team with championship aspirations really is who's going to back him up? Who is going to be the next guy up? Obviously, Scott, like you said, has had command issues throughout this season, but it's a little unclear who you know Coach Esker can turn to after Matthews. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, as of right now, it's been Joey Dixon. He's had a real resurgent year after changing up his arsenal a bit and gearing more towards having power stuff. And I do think that he is kind of the next man up. He'll probably be the guy that we see in an opening game in a regional at this point. And then you have Quinn Matthews and Matt Scott and a, a pretty good bullpen to follow. It's the general rule of thumb is to make a deep college postseason run, you need about six pitchers to, to be on consistent with some combination of starters and believers. And Scott is really the guy that could be number six. And you know, if he were to, to iron out any command issues that he had in the mechanical issues, then I do think that that will really be the indicator of is Stanford going to make a deep run into the playoffs for possibly even going back to Omaha? Or will they come up short for the first time since, I believe, 2019? Right, and for the first time since you've been covering them, you've made that trip out to Omaha. I mean, this year the bats have been so hot for the Cardinal, but perhaps not to call it their kryptonite, but their one weak point is that pitching. You know, in years past, no national championship yet, but quite great success on the, you know, in the grand scheme of things. What was their shortcoming when they made it to Omaha and fell just short in the last few years? Well, I think you said it yourself, it's been the pitching staff. In the past, you know, last year it was Alex Williams and Quinn Matthews and Ryan Brewer with a closer the year before that. It was Brendan Beck and Alex Williams and Zach Gretsch is the closer. In either of those two years, they could really rely on multiple arms in their bullpen. The way they came this year, I actually made the argument earlier on that this is one of the more well-rounded squads they've had since they won the conference in 2018. They have, you know, Drew Dowd as a, a leverage guy, transitioning from the Saturday starter role this year. They have Brent Panzer, who's uh, had pretty good command of a couple of pitches. You've had... Uh, of course, Ryan Bruno, who's rediscovered his command and gained some velocity, hit triple digits in Phoenix just a couple of weeks ago. And then you have a couple of live arms that you know, they can give you a, couple, a few good innings at a time, like uh, Torrin O'Haran, Trevor Moore, uh, Nick Dugan, Max Meyer, Nick Lopez. So they just need a, a couple of guys to find it at a time. And, you know, we've seen them piece together some pretty good bullpen victories this year as well. Yeah. Yeah, Carson, I was kind of wondering what your take has been on Ryan Bruno's performance this year. He's someone that we've talked about on past shows that is really a critical person to come in and get those final three to six outs. Kind of struggled at points early in the year, but has really been on fire, quite honestly, as of late. What have you seen out of 
both his command and his arsenal this year? And how confident are you in his ability to come in late in games and, and retire a batter or an innings of work or, or whatever the coaching staff calls on him? Well, yeah, I think he's one of the premier late-inning relief arms in all of college baseball. And ever since he's cut down on the walks and really trusted his stuff, both his fastball and his changeup have ticked up. He's really erring on the side of regression. And, you know, with having a live fastball, you can afford to do that. And then once you see that the guy's looking for that, uh, you know, that, that offering, then you can mix in that changeup and get some ugly swings. So I do think that he's still, you know, by, by far the most qualified person on the Cardinals and possibly one of the best relief arms in college baseball still. I think those command issues have, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to speculate if they were mechanical or if they were uh, something that's not physical. But either way, he's, he's found it now. He is throwing strikes consistently. And when he's at his best, he can be flat-out untouchable. And is he the guy that, you know, if you're in the position of David Asker, he's your go-to guy when you've got to close a game out? It, it, it's getting close late in the game, needs someone to really put it away? Say again? He, uh, we're wondering, is Bruno the guy that you're most confident in coming out of the bullpen? It's a highest stressful situation. You need an out or you need someone to close out an out in the eighth and three outs in the ninth. Is Bruno the go-to yeah. guy if you are the manager? Yes, absolutely, 100%. Um, you, not to say that there are not other guys that are equally capable of, of, of getting it done, but you know you always want to have that flamethrower to go to when you're the back end of your bullpen. They can really shorten games if he and Dowd and Panther are all, are all at their best. No, absolutely, Carson. And so that's one way to win games. But a lot of times this year, it's been the bats that have carried the team. We're talking about eight to nine runs a game in, in some series. Is that the recipe for Stanford baseball in the postseason, just kind of outscoring other teams? Or what are the factors that this team really needs to excel out in, it or, in order to make it to Omaha and even maybe bring home a national championship? Well, yeah, so the past couple of years, there have been very different kind of modes of winning for this Cardinal team. In 2021, they can outpitch you. They can play a, a, a gritty, tough, close game, uh, late in ball games. And last year in 2022, it was kind of, they can out hit you, but unless Quinn Matthews or Alex Williams has a bang up, you know, an excellent start, they're not going to out hit you. This year, I think it's a balance of the two. I think the, the, the key thing is the bats have to stay hot. Last year's weaknesses with the pitching staff were covered up by the fact that the offense could put up 15 or 16 runs a game on a whim. And that happened a lot, especially in the month of May. That's one of the reasons why their ranking was so inflated. So I think this year, something to look at is if you head into the Super Regionals and the bats are still hot, or if you're heading into the Regionals and you're still swinging hot bats, and then you can start putting together those quality starts and the quality release outings, then I think you really have to worry about the Cardinals as a national title contending team. And, and certainly those bats of the Cardinal, like you said, in years past have been so great. But this year, perhaps maybe not the same, I don't want to call firepower, but it seems like the depth is there. I mean, 12 Cardinal earning all Pac-12 honors. My mind instantly goes to Tommy Troy, who won the Pac-12 batting uh, title. And then obviously Alberto Rios, Pac-12 player of the year, third in batting average, along with that explosive slugging of his other people that come to mind, Braden Montgomery, a lot of buzz surrounding him, Eddie Park, as always. You know, I'm curious, this season, with the regular season now done, Cardinal finished 
37 and 14. Who were your real top performers, guys, that both exceeded expectations and were most integral to this team's success? Well, so many guys have stepped up this year that it's hard to name just a couple. But I'm going to go with Alberto Rios, especially because not only has he really stepped up after kind of having a bench role each of the past two years, but also he's been a very vocal leader. and He's been a guy that's kind of a heart and soul personality and is capable of bringing the rest of the other players around him up. And, you know, of course, he was putting up good numbers in summer ball, but he comes out this year and lights up the Pac-12. He's always the Pac-12 player of the year. And he really did an amazing job transitioning to left field as well. So I think he'll, he'll probably be the, the – I'm not going to call it a surprise, but I do think that – I don't know how many people were expecting him to you know, put up double-digit home runs and an average in the 380s. I think that he'll really be the guy that, that I think we can we should look to to – really light things up in the postseason. Yeah, Carson, a little bit of a dicey question here. Going to put the coaching staff on the hot seat now, but Rios appeared in seven games last year. Now he's Pac-12 Player of the Year, batting 400. So many multi-hit games, so many clutch hits, so many home runs. Is there a reason why he saw so few appearances? Was it off-season jumps? What is the reason why... Alberto Rios has never seen action like he did this year. I mean, it was just a product of death, right? Because you had Cody Huffett catcher last year and the year before that. And you had, you know, the outfield was pretty much a locked Montgomery Park and Brock Jones. And you can't exactly, you know, take their names going too long out of the lineup. And then, of course, the year before that, it was Christian Robinson alongside Park and Jones. So I think that that's really, you know, it's just death. When you play on a perennial national title contender, you have a lot of guys who graduate, but a lot of guys that step up. And as a result, you know, you first couple of the years, you might not get the playing time that you would if you went to a mid-major school. But that's kind of the, the – you get in the payoff right now is where he gets to take the stage and gets to lead the team and really gets to propel them and, you know, be a cornerstone of their offense at the the important part of the And so evidently, you know, there's talent coming in year after year. Um, and in the case of Rio, sometimes just have to wait to showcase that talent with such incredible guys ahead of you. One guy who we've already seen so early in his Stanford career, freshman Malcolm Moore winning Pac-12 freshman of the year. I'd love to hear what your thoughts on his performance this year were, especially as a freshman. I know freshman... You know, Braden Montgomery was a real star last year, but we thought that was an anomaly. He brought such a special skill set to the table, yet seemingly the farm produces another Pac-12 Freshman of the Year in Malcolm Moore. What are your thoughts on his performance this season, uh, especially at such a young age? Well, he's done a great job of making adjustments and managing the workflow. He kind of got himself out of a slump uh, halfway through this season after he started tapping into his power pull side a little bit more. And I do think that, you know, that that's really what's allowed him to, to be such a, a cornerstone piece, a key piece at a premium position. So that he's been able to make those adjustments. And also, you know, he really make strides with his defense. I think we still see teams kind of choose to run on him. But, you know, his blocking has vastly improved. Um, you know, his game calling is, is still developing. Things can be said for his, his, his throwing, but still, 
it's it's been such a big step forward in, in all aspects of his game that's allowed him to really become one of the most important players on any team in the Pac-12, let alone on Stanford's you know, premium offensive Certainly. Speaking of, you know, that freshman role last year, Braden Montgomery, I mean, what a debut to freshman year campaign to all-around performance. He was a guy that there was so much buzz around, and for good reason, uh, especially at the end of the season through the offseason. However, I feel like that buzz and hype has perhaps been tamed, but it's not like he has played poorly. I mean, the sophomore put up numbers hitting 333, 12 doubles, 14 homers. He put up numbers. What did you think about perhaps his jump or lack thereof, despite the, the, the strong numbers from him? Well, I think that a lot of the reason why the hype around him has died down, relatively speaking, is because his pitching still needs a little bit of work. You know, if you look at his, his numbers on the mound, it's not quite as pretty. And of course, he was touted coming into college as perhaps the Shohei Otani type, one of the true two-way guys in, in the entire Division One landscape. So I think that's kind of a reason why also his, his um, average kind of took a downturn toward the middle of the season when many of the Cardinals bat slumped. For that, he was a golden spike, you know, watch list during the midseason. And he was, you know, putting up almost video game numbers that would earn him you know, a golden spike mentioned, if not for if not for Dylan Cruz and a bunch of the other guys, up at the, the very top of college baseball. But I think that that's kind of the, the outlook on him is that he's transitioned to being much more of a position player, even though he still has the arm talent. The pitch is just the, you know, the height side down, because the pitching just hasn't quite developed the way his defense and his you know his defensive arm and his hitting. Absolutely. Now shifting more broadly. We've kind of hinted at some of the aspirations this team has, but there's undoubtedly a pretty wide range of teams that are also looking to bring home a national championship. The SEC is generally the perennial baseball conference, but the ACC has really made a name for itself this year with Wake Forest, Clemson, Miami, and some of the other schools there. Which conference do you think is currently a top college baseball, and which team specifically should Stanford fans kind of be on the lookout for this postseason? Well, I think that it's still with the SEC just because of the amount of money and resources and analytical thoughts they put into developing players and developing their teams. I still think that they have the edge. I mean, of course, you know, we don't need to remind anybody about Vanderbilt and how good of a program they are, nor do we have to about Arkansas. But those are two teams to watch in addition to LSU, who have possibly the top two draft picks this year. I think those are the three schools in the SEC. Although, of course, you did mention the ACC, Boston College, Wake Forest, who's one of the best rotations in all of baseball. And you know, going back to the SEC, Florida, with um, a very deep offense, including another guy who would ordinarily be a layup to be drafted first overall. So I do think that the names to watch out for are you know, mostly from the SEC, Florida, Arkansas, and from the ACC, wait for us. And so the field is strong as Stanford approaches first the Pac-12 tournament and then hopefully much, much more in the NCAA tournament and perhaps ultimately the College World Series. Carson, I know we can probably expect you to be in Omaha if the team makes it, 
Do you expect to be there? How do you see this season ultimately panning out for the Stanford Cardinal? Well, so I think that this is a team that has the highest ceiling as I've ever seen. And I think they're the most well-rounded since I've been calling these games. So I think that we'll have a good idea of how the season's going to shape up based off of the first couple of regional games. If they end up dropping one of their first three games, I do think that they're really going to have to work harder to get back to the Super Eagles and back to Omaha. But if their bats are, are really still hitting well, and if they can put together some strong outings, uh, both in terms of starting pitching and in relief, I do think that we just might see them back to Omaha this year. Absolutely, Carson. And so with that, we just want to give you one last chance to provide any other commentary before we let you off here at the middle of the hour. A huge, huge thanks you to you for coming on. But any last words you have for any special listeners or just the broader Stanford baseball audience? Well, it's been a pleasure calling the games the past three years, and I hope to be back for the first part of next year. But, you know, for now, uh, Janine Connor Garcia Whitehill, Donnie Raymond, uh, Evan Seaver, Tyler uh, Snyder, and others uh, for the duration of uh, KZSU's coverage of Stanford baseball. Uh, it's also yeah, it's been very fun coming on the sports team with all you guys. So uh, thank you very much again for having me. Carson. And, yeah, good luck to Stanford and good luck to the rest of the quarter. Loved having you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Carson Trail, the voice of Stanford baseball for so long. We wish you the best. Thank you for joining the show, Carson. A pleasure. Thank you very much. What a treat that was, folks. Carson Trail, really someone whose baseball knowledge on this campus, especially around Stanford baseball, is unrivaled. That is really inside knowledge about someone that's not only watching every game, but watching every game with the context of the past two years as well. We apologize for some of the audio difficulties and the music coming through the background, but nonetheless, his perspective, one that's so unique on this campus as a whole. What a, what a pleasure. I mean, Carson, if you listeners out there are frequent KZSU fans, have not heard him on the call, I strongly, strongly encourage you to tune in next time he's on it. He does baseball, uh, and is truly nearly every game, as well as men's and women's basketball. Um, it was helped me, as I joined KZSU, find my voice. And, and just an absolute pleasure, a class act, a wonderful person who's as he's demonstrated, so deeply, deeply knowledgeable about Stanford baseball. And so making the short trek from the baseball field to the softball field, a team that's already punched their ticket to the Super Regionals, which is number nine, the Stanford softball team this past weekend, they hosted and won the regional in a clean three-game fashion. They'll be headed out east to number nine, Duke. Zach, what happened this last weekend in the Stanford Regional that allowed them to kind of advance uh, to the next round of postseason play? I mean, truly utter dominance. Uh, starting it off on Friday with a nighttime victory over Long Beach State, it was just 1-0. to zero. Bats were not firing, but I'll tell you what, it's the pitching of this team that has gotten, their, gotten them where they are, the absolute strong point. A freshman phenom, perhaps the best pitcher in all of college softball, leading the charge. And it 
reveals itself in the fact that they give up zero, zero runs, even in a game in which the bats are struggling, even in a game in which the offense can't get going. The pitching is there to step up a 1 0 win, lead up to the weekend with a pair of victories over number 20 Florida. And from then on, Jacob, it was utter domination. An 8 0 victory in six innings on Saturday, followed up with an 11 2 victory over Florida on Sunday. I mean, this team is probably right where they want to be. I don't know if you could ask for much more. The pitching is strong. The bats are firing. If they can continue on this momentum into Durham, North Carolina, take on a Duke team that I don't even know uh, stacks up that well against a team like Florida, things could bode well for the Cardinal. Absolutely. And kind of that domination is so unique in the regional stage Zach's touch on the scores, but in aggregate, folks, that is a 20-2 to margin of victory over three games. And the thing is, two of those games weren't even close. Yet, we did see a little bit of a, of a challenge against Long Beach State in that 1-0 match. And I think that, to me, is the game that really shows the poise of this Stanford team Quite honestly, this Long Beach State team is one they should have handled with ease, and they didn't, but they put out a win in those types of performances where you have to grit your teeth and find a way to score a run are going to prepare them most against a Duke team that maybe doesn't match up well but has still had quite a spectacular season themselves and has home field advantage for the three-game series. Truly can't anticipate a heavyweight matchup. I mean, six in the country versus seven. That home field advantage is going to hold some weight. Uh, ultimately, though, in the world of college softball, you know, I don't know how much of an advantage it does provide. Certainly, being familiar with the stadium, playing in the comfort of your own home in your very own time zone, that is something you cannot take for granted. But, you know, you don't have the crowds that other sports might bring in. You don't have the distractions. Stanford very well may benefit from what seems to be an unideal situation. Uh, I mean, something else about this team is just the mental strength. Like you said, should have handled Long Beach State 0-0 zero to zero entering the sixth inning. And rather than get flustered, I mean, they just take care of business get that run in the bottom of the sixth, close it out in the top of the seventh. This is a team whose mental fortitude is a reason that they are in the position that they are now. Because of that, a road trip to Duke should quite honestly result in a better result than any other team in the country in my mind. No, absolutely. And that is really in huge part because of the one-two punch of Alana Vodder and the freshman phenom that Zach kind of briefly touched on but maybe didn't even truly express it, which is Najari Kennedy, the freshman from Kansas, who this year has been absolutely superb. ERA less than one. She's 15-1 and one on the year with eight complete games. That one-two punch is so dominant. And you see Vodder goes seven innings in game one. Kennedy goes six innings in the run rule in game two. And then they split time in the decisive third game victory. You only need two games, and both of these pitchers have the ability to win multiple games. That pitching staff is one that I'm really excited to see 
in in the upcoming series. I mean, I'm serious. Have have you ever heard of numbers like this? 180 strikeouts to just 18 walks. One home run given up. Just seven extra base hits throughout the entirety of the year. I, I don't know if there's even a comparable player, especially as a freshman, in any sport. I mean, I completely agree. And the thing is, she is the ace to be, but Alana Vada herself having a wonderful season, senior season, she got two of the three starts and went deep into both of those games. She has a little bit more experience here. She's been around for quite a while because of just the seniority that she's had and this season really has been able to thrive having the the backup option of Canada currently also supporting an ERA that's less than two at 1.79 she's 19 and 8 on the year with 175 innings pitched and only 45 earned runs total given up you know speaking of the mental fortitude do you feel like Stanford maybe has a chip on their shoulder entering this one. You know, they haven't quite had the success that they found this year in years prior. Not a team that garners a lot of attention on this campus. It's especially tough when baseball, their male counterpart, has quite honestly thrived, especially relative to a lot of other big semi-revenue-generating Stanford sports. Coupled with the fact that players like Najari... We're not even named freshman of the year, not even named Pac-12 pitcher of the year, much less player of the year, just a first-team all-selection, not in the top 10 for the finalists within the USA softball college player of the year. Is this a team with something to prove? No, absolutely. And I think it, that is really a narrative that started last year when they advanced to the Supers, and yet no one predicted that. No one expected them to upset Alabama in the regional and then host their own super. And they kind of shocked the country a little bit. Yet, the entire offseason, no one was talking about them. No one was talking about the senior leadership, the ability of this team to kind of make a run because of its pitching and its speed and hitting. And then they start the season and they start out slow and the hype around them gets somehow even lower. They take it in stride and have used it to motivate them. And they've put themselves well on the map. In fact, many people around this area still holding them in high regards in terms of national champion favorites. They're going to have to go through some quality opponents, but this team is one that has kind of thrived flying under the radar and using that to their advantage. And so a trip to Duke impending for the Cardinal and perhaps the College World Series after. Do we have any predictions for how this just might pan out for the Stanford Cardinal, who right now sit at number six in the country? You know, there's a reason why you play these games, and Duke is no team to scoff at. They also went 3-0 and in their regional Bless you, Jacob. Thank you, Zach. But 
this is a team that is coming in absolutely red hot. They won three in their regional, and before that, they had won, I believe, five of six games. So they've won eight of their last nine. But one thing that I definitely worry about, if I, I'd worry about if I was a Duke fan, is kind of the quality of competition. ACC softball, other than Florida State, not really one that is all that famous. They haven't seen a ton of competition as of late. And so I think that is kind of an interesting aspect of this matchup is that they haven't really been tested as of late. The other thing is they much prefer to win low scoring battles while Stanford is a little bit more comfortable putting up a handful of runs and letting the pitchers have a little bit of leeway even though they often don't need it. So I think this is definitely a game that that could go or a series that could go three games. Um, I think depending on which pitcher feels a little bit better is throwing it in the the right spot will really indicate because it could go either way and that game three will will really require both teams to to show their best but I think the Cardinal definitely have a a more than quality chance at winning winning the series certainly feeling good like you mentioned that quality of play I mean three Pac-12 teams in UCLA Washington and Stanford all sitting in the top six, I think that perhaps it may be in the cards getting past this round and then ultimately on to the final stage. But at that juncture, you're looking at some teams that have had a historic runs. I mean, Big 12, SEC. The one school that's on my mind is number one, Oklahoma. They had every single first place vote because they have a 51 and 1 record. They have sat atop the pole effectively all season because of just the domination they've had. That is a team I truly don't know. No, and yeah. Yeah, absolutely, Zach. And what makes it so interesting is that the team everyone predicted to have the greatest chance to upset the Sooners was UCLA who got upset in their regional the number two ranked national seed representing the Pac-12, and and they got sent home early. This Oklahoma team, and, and really this program, is reminiscent of some of the greatest dynasties in sports history. 46-game win streak. They run-ruled all three opponents on their way to the Supers. I mean, I don't know how to say it, but even just getting to the final, some some... How feels like it should be worth more. Like there should be a Oklahoma national championship, and then whoever can get there is like the real national champion because this Oklahoma team is just so so good. And and I don't even know if any team can compete with them at this point. Truly, same sentiment. If it were not for Oklahoma, I would feel like there's a shot for this Stanford team. Obviously, you cannot count anything out. You can't count this team out, but it is a matchup with Goliath if Stanford finds themselves in the national championship against them. Nonetheless, still a ways to go before then, and a lot of other fun stuff to talk about going on in the farm. Certainly what comes to mind is a team who has fought to find their place 
competing for a national championship like softball, except they are so, so, so close. Even individuals getting NCAA championships. I'm talking about women's golf, a program that I think is the most dominant Stanford program up there with men's gymnastics. Earlier this week, Rose Zhang, the sophomore, if you're unfamiliar with her, the number one amateur in the world, won her second consecutive national championship individual title, first woman to ever win multiple national titles in her career. And how about her 12th career victory, the most in Pac-12 women's golf history, even more than Tiger Woods. I mean, these are surreal numbers. Also set an NCAA record with a scoring average of 68.81 over 31 rounds. I think I at least double that every time I go out on the course. It's unfathomable, Zach, how well she's able to consistently play. First person in NCAA history to win back-to-back individual titles breaks the record that she set for lowest season average. What's Really, something that's caught my attention lately is who she's being compared to. Whenever she came onto the farm, she was being compared to some of her teammates. Rachel Heck won the individual championship three years ago. She was being compared to her as a number one amateur. Then she won last year, and and they were still comparing them to her. Then she won Augusta Amateurs, and now she's won another individual national championship. And the people that she's being compared to are no longer current college golfers they're the best college golfers of all time Lorena Ochoa Tiger Woods to name two people that people in the college golf world are comparing her to and those are people that hold all time records for most career wins for lowest scoring averages she's no longer just being compared to a college golfer she's being compared to those that are seen as the best college golfers in the history of the sport. We're talking about generational talent, generational greatness right here before I, I my our eyes. Um, the individual titles certainly there, but for an individual sport, there still is a Stanford team. And I know that national titles are something so greatly valued when you talk about legacy, but Roseng has contributed to this Stanford team willing its way back into the NCAA semifinals. This afternoon, they're battling number 5 USC with a trip to the national championship on the line. Number 1 in the country, this Stanford team, won the championship last year. I mean, quite frankly, I just feel like there's no doubt in my mind that they repeat. Yeah, I mean, a bold statement. Fingers crossed you didn't jinx them there, Zach. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. But this team, even though they've been so dominant, has still faced some adversary this year. Rose, in her individual championship, started four shots back to San Jose State's Lucia Lopez-Ortega, which four shots in one round of golf is very difficult to make up. She did that. Rachel Heck, who I mentioned earlier, had surgery this year. She won an individual NCAA championship. She's no longer part of this team. Other golfers have had to step up, and they have done just that. Sadie Engelman, absolutely superb in the preliminary NCAA tournaments, among so many others. But this is a team that has been dominant, yet is also battle-tested and 
is really hungry for a national championship. Once again, they're not content having won last year. You talk to them around campus, they're locked in, they're laser-focused, and that is kind of the difference in my mind between them and some of the other teams that you know often fall short when it comes to the the holy grail of expectations. And so tomorrow, the season will come to an end. A champion will prevail. A title will be hoisted. The four teams that remain are Wake Forest, Texas A&M, USC, and of course, your Stanford Cardinal. By the time this episode goes out, we may or may not know who wins it, but a repeat opportunity for the Cardinal, led by the likes of Roseang and her counterparts like Jacob talked about. This is a program that I have voiced my appreciation for as the most dominant on the farm. We can expect great, great things from them over this next day and a half. No, absolutely. And that is just a great team to be around on campus. You know, we've talked about some of the reputations and how athletes interact with students. The women's golf team, even the men's golf team, in my opinion, some of my absolute favorite student athletes on this campus, so nice to interact with, very engaged in classes. So if you have a free moment of time, turn on the TV, check them out, stream it on your computer at work. This is a team that is making history behind one of the greatest golfers that the college game has ever seen. And the thing is, they're just getting started. And so tournament playoffs, whatever you want to call it, has been going on here on the farm for your Stanford Cardinal. However, it's playoff season all across the sporting world. For me as a lifelong Hoops fan, I'm certainly thinking about the NBA playoffs. LeBron James swept. Jordan was never swept, but LeBron James swept. Steph Curry was never swept. LeBron James swept (laughs) by the Denver Nuggets. If you can't tell, I have some reservations about the Los Angeles Lakers. And so now we turn our attention to who will play the Denver Nuggets in the 2023 NBA Finals right now. The Miami Heat up 3-0 on the Boston Celtics. And who would have seen this one coming? Jimmy Butler, we've talked about on this show. I think he's the guy for the sports zoo, is he not? Yeah, you know. <laughs> oh, I forgot you're a Celtics <laughs> fan, Jacob. We, uh, we had to uh, erase the clips from last week of me saying I wasn't worried about the Heat. It was going to be a, a quick series. But before we jump into that, you know, A great point, Zach, that it feels like this time right now in the past few weeks and in the few weeks we have left is really what shows whether your team is a pretender or a contender. Mm. You look at some of the different basketball teams. We're now in the conference finals. You look at the golf world. We're in the NCAA semis. Softball is in the supers. Baseball is gearing up for the postseason Now is really when these spring sports show you which teams are really dominant. And that's just a fun time to be a sports fan, all things aside. Absolutely is. I mean, even OTAs kicking up for football, there's just buzz about each and everything. Um, I know if you're tuning into the sports zoo, you love what's going on like Jacob and I. 
just uh, appreciation all around, really. Yeah, not even to mention some of the sports that we try to get to but often don't, which is, you know, the water polo sports. We just had a women's national championship there. The men's gymnastics team winning a month or two back. Now is whenever championships are handed out, and unfortunately it is looking like my Boston Celtics will not be hosting or hoisting, I should say, an NCAA championship. I was still confident down 2-0 because of how the Celtics lost those two games. Game three was a huge, huge disappointment. And and the fact that it's now a three-game deficit only makes it worse. But the way that the Celtics lost game three was just hard to watch and hard to keep any hope about the rest of the series. I mean, you know... Something that this young team with a first-year head coach has been called out for is quitting. Down just 2-0, but yeah, playing on the road against a 7-seed. Oh, don't call him a 7-seed. Or an 8-seed. Eight, eight like oh, man. man. Don't even oh, don't say man. <laughs> um, Is this team quitting right before our eyes? A team led by Jason Tatum, a team led by Jalen Brown. Such perennial talent, and yet they're just giving up? You know, there's definitely been moments where it, it kind of appears that way. I think I don't remember if it was in game one or game two, but they're down six with less than a minute left. They still have a timeout, meaning they can advance the ball, and yet they don't foul. They don't try to get a steal. They just let the heat dribble out the clock, and then the game is over. doesn't really make sense because two possessions is nothing when you can advance the ball. You look at some of the times when their leads have been kind of overcome by the heat, and you don't have that person kind of firing the team up. You don't have that that person, that Jimmy Butler, that's holding people accountable. And that hasn't really been an issue for the Celtics this year. And now it's become a glaring problem. You don't know if it's one of the two superstars that's supposed to do it. Is that Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown? You don't know if it's a toughness guy like Marcus Smart. You don't know if it's a veteran like Al Horford. But no one is kind of holding the team accountable for their effort. I absolutely despise Draymond Green, but that role that he plays for the Warriors is one that's so valuable and a role that is hard to really understand as a fan sometimes, but but that ignition, that catalyst of holding a team's intensity in every scenario is one that the Celtics are severely lacking right now. And who who does it ultimately fall upon? Does it fall upon the leaders on the court? Does it fall upon your head coach, Joe Mazzula, who people are calling to be fired already after leading a team to a 57-win season in his first year all the way to the Eastern Conference Finals? Is it a top-down issue? Is it just a culture issue? Who does the responsibility and blame ultimately fall on? Yeah, I mean, if this was in a vacuum and, and it was the first time this had happened, I don't think this conversation would even be one that we'd be having. We'd celebrate this as a successful season where a Miami Heat team that's destined for greatness just overplayed us. The fact is this team has now lost in the conference finals or the finals in a number of years in a row. I believe this will be the fourth year in a row. And... Every year, it kind of feels like that little craziness, that Mamba mentality, that Jordan edge is what's missing. I think part of it is definitely the coaching staff. 
Missoula has a really hands-off approach. I think that's just kind of his offensive style and his defensive strategy. But I don't know if it's working right now. And and I don't know if that's a trait that will ultimately lead to his demise, but he is not motivating his players to play at 100% intensity in every moment of the game. And so looking at this team... I mean, big-name players demand big-name money. Something I've heard thrown around is it's time to blow up the Boston Celtics. Why did you have to say it like that? <laughs> is it time That's to, hard to hear. <laughs> is it time to take apart this young core that has found its way into the finals last year, found its way into the Eastern Conference Finals now? Is it really time to do that? I don't know. I, I'm still holding out hope that we can come back from down 3-0. I don't know. Has that ever... I don't think that's Never ever... in the history of the NBA. You know, playoffs. my dream scenario would be in a week from now, we're talking about how the Celtics core just put off one of the greatest feats in NBA history. If they aren't able to do that, you know, I, I don't... I honestly am kind of at a loss. Jason Tatum is going to be the face of the NBA for the next five to ten years, pending that, injuries. I, I find that a very bold take. You're talking about first-team All-NBA Jason Tatum is not going to be the face of the NBA. I'm sorry, Who, what, what has Jason Tatum shown you this series? You mean Jason Tatum that dropped 51 in Game 7 against the 76ers? I, I said, what has Jason Tatum shown you in this okay, series? Okay, fair, fair enough. This series has been tough, but I think the talent that he has and his age will keep him at the forefront of the league. He's just 19. <laughs> will he ever be the number one? Will he be the LeBron or the Giannis of the league? No. But will he be kind of that right below them? I think absolutely. And so, yeah, maybe that is a hot take, but he is someone that I think can lead a team to a championship with the right pieces. I I don't know because it feels like at some point you have to acknowledge it's what you've assembled is not working and Two losses in the finals, two losses in the Eastern Conference Finals, all in the last four years, and and something needs to change. I just, I don't know what that is. I mean, to be quite frank, I I think you just keep it, keep it rolling how it is. It's been successful. People are too quick to count people out, too short of a leash for these teams that just don't quite find that last piece, make the last step. Maybe they'll give us hope to, uh. You know, maybe they'll give us reason tonight to say that they should stay together. But game four tonight at five thirty, we'll see what happens. We will. And either way, can any team challenge the Nuggets right now? Your quick early finals prediction in the last thirty seconds, Zach. Are the Nuggets taking it home till the end? I will be rooting for the Miami Heat. But I'm sorry, the Nuggets in five or six. I'll say final answer. Nuggets take this one in six. Absolutely. You heard it here first on the Sports Zoo. My name is Jacob Nidig. I've been joined live by my co-host, as usual, Zach Zaffron, and our special guest, Carson Trail. As always, we'll be back here next week for the KZSU 90.1 FM Sports Zoo. Wear red, stay late, and go card.